Welcome to Natural MD Radio, your place to hear the whole truth on health and medicine for women and children and get the tools you need to take back your health naturally starting now. I'm Dr. Aviva Ram. Hi, ladies, and welcome to episode 92 of Natural MD Radio. I'm slightly preempting the detoxification series last episode on herbal medicine for detoxification support to bring you a topic that I think so many women are concerned about and interested in, which is, can you use herbs to facilitate and ease labor? Pregnancy and birth are amongst the many areas of our lives as women that have become so medicalized and depersonalized. A birthing woman in the U.S. has a tremendous chance of having her labor-induced, a high likelihood of receiving pain medication, and significantly a one-in-three chance of a cesarean section. And despite all efforts to reduce cesarean section rates, they have actually doubled worldwide. I'm going to be bringing you a special episode on that very soon. Each of these interventions, although of course sometimes necessary and life-saving, carries the risk of what I call unintended consequences, which for mamas, to name a few, can include a higher rate of medication reactions, bleeding, organ damage, infections, and blood clots far and beyond the normal for vaginal birth. In fact, frighteningly, U.S. hospitals are now one of the riskiest places in the Western world for a woman to give birth. We have some of the worst birth outcomes and statistics for maternal mortality in the westernized world. Most of us have also heard our fair share of horror stories about long labors and challenging births long before we've even become pregnant ourselves. And of course, we want to do the best to be able to prepare our bodies ahead of time to have the healthiest and easiest labor possible. Now, I don't want to add to the scary, but I do think it's really important that we be honest with ourselves about this medicalization and the risks to ourselves and do everything we can within our power to allow ourselves to birth as naturally as possible. I don't believe there should be any judgment about the type of birth any woman chooses, prefers, or needs to have, of course, but in a time when we're kind of convinced that natural birth is impossible and not natural, and that C-section and other interventions are the way to go, I think we do owe it to ourselves and our babies for so many reasons to consider what our options are. I do talk more about these risks of C-section and the rates and why some of this is happening with my colleague, obstetrician Neil Shaw in episode 58 of Natural MD Radio. So if you're interested in hearing more about the politics and what some of us are doing to try to reduce cesarean likelihood for mamas, head over there. It's a great podcast and Neil is amazing. So if you're like so many pregnant women, on the one hand, you're kind of freaking out at the thought of pushing a small cantaloupe-sized head out of your vagina, and on the other hand, want to do everything you can to avoid 
any unnecessary medical procedures, including cesareans. You're probably here because you're doing your homework ahead of time, and I'm so glad you are, because what I want to make possible for you is the most beautiful, easy passage and empowering passage into motherhood as possible for you. In my 35 years of practice, initially as a home birth midwife and then as an MD specializing in women's health, including training in obstetrics, as well as being the mama of four, I've learned a lot about labor and birth. One, that for most of us, it's pretty darn hard work, but it can also be the most beautiful and one of the most empowering events in our lives. And that's true however you birth, if you own your own experience. And again, I really want to just emphasize this, no judgment over how you birth. But one of the things that I do in my work is help share with women the tools that we do have in our toolkit, in our gardens, in our pantries, in our pharmacies that can help us avoid some of the speed bumps that often do lead to what are preventable birth interventions. And the most common of these are not going into labor within an expected amount of time after your due date, which is a hotly debated discussion. I talk about that at length in my blog series on my website on labor induction. And if you want the links to that, you can head over to my website for this podcast and underneath the podcast notes, you'll find the links. And so to get to this podcast, all you have to do is go to avivaram.com forward slash 92. It's the number 92. So avivaram.com forward slash 92. That's the episode we're in and you'll get all the links that I'm talking about. So not going into labor in a reasonable amount of time, according to what obstetrics thinks, which most obstetricians think is within a week after your due date. Actually, however, normal human gestation is known to go up to two weeks after, so up to 42 weeks pregnancy, which most midwives support. Another reason for labor induction or for sometimes having other interventions or augmentation, I should say, when labor's already been happening, but somebody tries to speed it up medically, is having a long labor or not having effective contractions that are moving things along. The need for pain medication, which often slows labor down, but sometimes becomes necessary when labor is going long. So these are some of the common things that lead to some of these interventions. Now, our bodies know exactly what to do to bring our babies into the world. But we do have to support this with some of the things that our four grandmothers and their grandmothers kind of automatically did as a way of life, like daily walking or being physically active or being educated about birth because traditionally we saw each other giving birth. We were around when our mothers gave birth and intergenerationally we saw births in our community, but most women don't see birth except on TV and in movies, which are often some of the worst examples. We also need to eat a healthy diet to support our growing babies, our increased metabolic needs during pregnancy and all the nutrients that so many women are not getting in our culture. Our 
traditional ancestors spent more time squatting, whether in the garden or bending over to pick up babies or, you know, in some cultures just spend a lot of time squatting. I have often in the years during having my own babies, our furniture was low to the ground. We had a low to the ground eating table that was our dining table. Uh, we had our beds on the floor. Our furniture was pillows. Yeah, we're like super hippie. But I spent a lot of time squatting and I still spend a lot of time squatting. Squatting isn't something that you naturally do. You can add it. And I'm talking about deep squatting, like where you're actually sitting close to the ground squatting. But you can also practice yoga for flexibility and strength and staying supple. Being around birth positive women and care providers is also really important. So much of the message that we get from our culture when we go to obstetrics visits, even sometimes midwives visits, because midwives, particularly if they're working in hospital, are so pressured by some of the regulations that they're under that we can all become really fearful of birth and in our own ways inadvertently communicate that to mamas. And so birth becomes a fearful event rather than a natural part of what our bodies do. And of course, in a culture where there are so many adverse birth events, we start to internalize that birth is scary rather than stepping back and saying, wait a minute, the culture that we're birthing in, in large part, makes birth scary. Now, I'm going to have some upcoming episodes on the importance of midwives for helping birth stay as natural as possible. And this is extensively proven data from many parts of the world. I also have a little book. It's like $5. I don't even get royalties from it anymore. It's hardly sells, but it was written a lot of years ago, but still completely relevant called The Pocket Guide to Midwifery Care. I didn't even know it was still in print, frankly, but it is actually still available on Amazon. And it's a great little book that talks about birthing statistics, what the differences are between different kinds of midwives, how to pick the birth setting that is really the healthiest for you personally, based on what your beliefs are, your philosophies, how you naturally live. And for some women, that is a hospital birth, and that's totally cool. For some women, it's a home birth, but it's a little tiny book that helps you sort out some pretty cool stuff. And so this is a lot of the preparatory work that I do with women during pregnancy, including doing the deep inner work of unlearning what are really truly patriarchal beliefs about birth, particularly that it is a catastrophe waiting to happen. There are also a few of my favorite books that I'd love to share with you. The first book I ever got on birth was Spiritual Midwifery by Ina Mae Gaskin. There's a great book called Birthing from Within by Pam England. And for a deeper understanding, if you're really interested and want to geek out a little bit, but read something that's still accessible, is a book called The Thinking Woman's Guide to a Better Birth by Hensi Goer. The support of another woman in labor, whether a doula who is supportive of you and knows the sort of tricks of the trade, things like nipple stimulation, which I know does not sound sexy, but really does work, and also knows how to kick ass to protect your space during labor if you're birthing in the hospital, or a midwife at home or in the hospital, all of these supportive women in labor, and it can even be a friend or a sister, another family member who's really comfortable with birth. Having another woman at birth has been known since the 1970s to dramatically reduce the need for medications, forceps, vacuum extractions, and cesareans, and actually be associated with happier, healthier moms at the end of the day. So this research is there. It's just not being 
used in hospitals. I mean, already in hospitals, there's stress around the economics of having enough nurses to support laboring women one-on-one. And there's a lot of data around the ability to have supportive nurses and also birth outcomes. So hospitals are not widely supporting um, doulas as part of the birthing package. It's something that you have to supply a lot of times yourself. Some hospitals do, particularly for women in need socioeconomically, but most of the time you do have to bring your own birth support person with you. But the value of that cost-wise, health-wise, so incredible. There's also some really good science about the safety and effectiveness of two of what are my now, and have been for a very long time, go-to natural remedies that can give you a little bit of extra assurance if you'd like to know that you're doing everything possible during pregnancy to help your body get ready for birth. And these are tried and true and tested. So I'm going to share a couple of these with you. One is red raspberry leaf. Now, undoubtedly, you've heard of red raspberry leaf. If you haven't, you're in for a treat. It's literally the leaves of the red raspberry plant. So it's not the yummy, delicious red raspberry fruits. It's the leaves, which are a little bit more fuzzy and less delectable, but as a tea has been used for at least centuries, both in Europe and also amongst North American native tribes as a mineral rich tonic to support a healthy pregnancy and quote unquote, toned the uterus to help women prepare for birth. Now, the fact that it's been used both in Europe And on this continent that I'm recording from, I'm in Western Massachusetts, actually is significant because when we see that the same herb is being used in widely different places before there was communication between people living in those places, that actually says something ethnobotanically that people discovered or became aware and started to use this herb for the same purpose in completely different places, that there's some actual significant value to that plant. This is a pretty interesting phenomenon that we look for as herbalists and ethnobotanists. Red raspberry leaf tea remains popular with about 63% of midwives in the U.S. actually recommending it as a labor or pregnancy tonic. How does it work? Well, it's high in vitamins like vitamin C, vitamin E, vitamin A, and some B vitamins. And it also has significant amounts of minerals like magnesium, potassium, calcium, and phosphorus. Not enough for it to substitute for a prenatal vitamin, but these minerals specifically nourish the uterus. And some of these minerals help the uterus to contract and relax, which is exactly the combination you need for labor to work effectively for the powerful muscles of your uterus to push your baby out. We tend to think of it as contractions, but what's really happening is contraction relaxation, then a little more contraction and relaxation. And it's almost like when you pull a turtleneck over your head, you don't kind of like pull it on. You pull it on a little slowly. It allows room for it to pull back over your head. That's kind of what's happening in labor. And the relaxation part is also really important because if you were in contraction all the time, your baby wouldn't get blood flow. You wouldn't get a break from contractions and it wouldn't be good for your uterus. So these minerals are working to help support the uterus in its natural contraction and relaxation functions. Now, it doesn't appear that red raspberry leaf is actually really that effective at stimulating and shortening labor, but 
drinking the tea or taking the capsules have actually been found to have a number of benefits. For example, results of a double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled trial, that's a mouthful, right? But it's the good kind of study that really shows things work, usually, consisting of 192 low-risk, first-time moms found that red raspberry leaf tablets taken daily, starting at 32 weeks pregnancy until labor, reduced the rate of forceps deliveries, while another study found that red raspberry leaf consumption was associated with decreased likelihood of preterm labor, decreased likelihood of going too far past your due date, decreased need for having your bag of waters artificially ruptured to stimulate labor, and lower overall rates of cesarean section forceps birth, and vacuum extraction. So pretty good stuff. So the question is then, it sounds pretty worthwhile taking, right? Are there any risks? Well, red raspberry leaf has been used practically since time immemorial, as far as we know it, with no evidence of harm in any reports anywhere in the traditional herbal literature, in modern botanical literature, or ever, ever, ever amongst midwives or herbalists who widely use it. Two rat studies, however, did find some weird results that at least you should be aware of because I like to give you all the information, not just cherry pick the good stuff. In one rat study, red raspberry leaf capsules at typical doses were found to have the effect of stimulating uterine contractions as we'd expect to support healthy labor. However, in very high contractions, far higher than human beings would ever get by using it in the ways that we do use it, like teas and capsules, weirdly, it inhibited uterine contractions. Now, this might not be that surprising because like I said, it has a lot of minerals that affect uterine contractions and relaxation. So high enough amounts of magnesium would actually inhibit uterine contraction. So that might be what's happening. In another study, this one also conducted on rats. The authors of the study found that pregnancy seemed to last longer, and there were also some changes in the rat offspring. They appeared to go into puberty earlier. Now, these are not problems that have ever been observed in human beings in spite of literally centuries of use. And the rat moms in both studies consumed red raspberry leaf products in doses way higher than we could possibly ingest. And the bottom line is there is a lot of difference between rats and humans, at least most of the time. As a pregnant midwife, herbal mama, I drank it every day, starting about halfway into my pregnancies. And I always was seen carrying a mason jar of tea with me. I was way ahead of the curve, ladies, on the mason jar thing. My kids, when they were little, were so embarrassed that we had mason jars as our glasses, like, why can't we have real glasses like other families? And I thought it was actually pretty cool. Who knew that mason jars 20 years later would become a chic thing? And now what's really funny is we do have mason jars, but I also have really nice glasses now that my kids are grown and out of the house and I don't have to replace glasses that break, which mason jars pretty much never do. So this was also long ago. This was in the 1980s, way before green juice was popular. So here I was, this, you know, hippie herbal midwife chick in my cool, hippie, yummy, delicious clothes and jewelry, pregnant with my babies and carrying around this mason jar, like a quart-sized mason jar with this really green stuff in it. And even at my midwife meetings, the midwives back in that day, they were like, Aviva, what 
the heck are you drinking? I would get so many looks. It was crazy. So I've been recommending it for a long time and drinking it for a long time. I feel really comfortable with it. Of course, you know, follow your own judgment. If those precautions make you uncomfortable, don't drink it. But I'm very comfortable with it personally. Now, when do you start drinking it? Well, Traditionally, we don't know exactly when women started drinking the tea and they were not taking capsules or using tinctures or anything like that. I recommend drinking the tea as my personal preference. I'm going to give you a recipe and I think the capsules are fine too. You can get teas at the health food store or online on a counter and you can get tea bags, but the tea bags aren't strong enough, just one tea bag per cup. So if you're going to really go for it with the red raspberry and try to get a medicinal effect, you need to put at least two tea bags into your cup and steep it for about a half an hour, not any like lightweight one bag, steep it for 10 minutes because you're not going to get much but flavor out of that. The other thing is that you have to really make sure if you're going to do that, that you make sure it actually has red raspberry leaf in it because a lot of teas that say red raspberry have red raspberry flavoring or red coloring, even if it's natural, but not enough red raspberry leaf to do anything. So I recommend purchasing it in bulk. I'll tell you more about that in a minute. I generally recommend not starting it until at least about halfway into the second trimester or just into your third trimester. And I generally recommend avoiding it earlier, even though there's no evidence that it can increase a miscarriage. There is evidence that it does increase uterine contractility. So I wouldn't want you to start drinking it in first trimester. You know, miscarriages are so common and I'd hate for any woman to do something that then she was looking back thinking, oh my gosh, did I do that? Was it the red raspberry leaf tea? And similarly, if you're a midwife or an herbalist, I'd hate for you to recommend something that somebody then has a miscarriage and associates with the tea and either you get blamed for it or in trouble, or it just puts like kind of a negative spin on the tea. And there's no reason for it. Our uteruses are tiny, firm balls for most of the first trimester. They don't need that much help. They don't need any help really. In fact, I don't actually believe they need any help at all. It's just that we live in a cold culture where we're trying to sort of fight city hall, if you will, you know, run against the odds of these interventions. And if there's something natural that our four grandmothers used and women are using all around the world, why not? It's part of our natural preparation. So overall, herbalists and midwives now consider red raspberry leaf to be a gentle, effective, nutritious herb to use in the second and third trimesters, and I concur. You know, for those of you who don't know me that well, you're just listening to this episode for the first time, you might be thinking, who is this woman and why should I listen to her about herbs? So I will actually claim bragging rights, which those who know me really well and know me personally know I pretty much never do. I'm not a boastful person, if anything. I tend to be on the more self-doubting, insecure side, quite frankly. I'm not anxious, but like one of those high-functioning self-doubters, you know. But as far as herbs and midwifery go, I do kind of like wear the laurels there. And I've been a midwife for 35 years now. And yes, I look young. I'm 52, but I also started studying midwifery when I was 15. You can go to my bio to read more about that. And there are lots of interviews with me on the internet. But I truly was one of the first modern generation herbalist midwives practicing in the United States. My herbal studies and my midwifery studies started at exactly the same time. And so in that day, there were really no books about herbs, natural pregnancy on the market. I wrote the first one 
pretty much. There was Janine Parvati, was Hygieia, a woman's herbal. She was actually my personal mentor and very dear friend. She's passed away now. There were two other herb books. Susan Weed's book came out in 1985, but she was neither a practicing herbalist clinically nor a midwife. It's a great book, but it's based on research and talking to other people, but I was really doing it. And then my books came out. My first book, I started writing the natural pregnancy book when I was 21. I would update the nutrition information drastically because it was really written in the very, very early years of natural foods we were still all eating gluten and dairy. We were just trying to get it organic. So a lot of the core nutritional guidance is great, but the foods, eh, I would change that. I'm working to get the publisher to have it updated. They're a little reluctant, but they just don't like to spend money on book updates and it's still selling. So they're like, why bother? Yes, I'm talking to you, publisher. It's time to update it and make it a more contemporary book. But the herbal wisdom in there and the traditional birth wisdom is unbeatable. And so I recommend it for that. In fact, a lot of the pregnancy teas you see on the market being sold and that herbal companies are selling, those are based on teas that I was creating way back in the day. Then I went on and became one of the leading women's herbalists in the country. I ran the National Herbal Organization, the largest one in the world, for over a decade as president and wrote the only textbook on botanical medicines for women's health. That's the name of it. It's an award-winning textbook now in its second edition. And I run the largest women's herbal training program in the world, which is Herbal Medicine for Women. That is available on my website over at avivaram.com forward slash H-M-W, H for herbal, M for medicine, W for women. That W for women is when my son was little, he used to say that he was a widmife when he was a really little boy. I was a midwife and he'd say, I'm a widmife too. So the transposed W probably came from me to him, but there you have it. So avivaram.com forward slash HMW. And that course is where I also share all this herbal lore and herbal wisdom, but also herbal science and data. This is what I do. And I'm an MD with a specialty in not only women's health and obstetrics, but women's integrative medicine. So I have a pretty solid background. I'm the herbalist, herbalist, if you will, and the doctor's herbalist. I'm the one people go to. So just so you know, it's not meant to brag, but to let you know that when I share herbal information with you, it's really based on solid science, solid experience, and solid knowledge of traditional wisdom, 35 years of intensive study. So I want you to just know that, of course, you should always make your own decisions. I will always bring the most accurate information to you. And it's not about trying to get people to convert to using herbs or any philosophy. It really is about, we've got this whole toolkit of ways that we can help to prevent illness and heal ourselves. And that includes botanicals. Conventional Western medicine doesn't help us prevent anything. It can help us heal things. And to me, whole medicine or holistic medicine, integrative medicine needs to look at all of the therapies, everything from red raspberry leaf to nuclear medicine as part of what we choose from and making the choices that are the most ecologically, most personally, and most scientifically wise to make. So there you have it. All right. So I just wanted you to know where I'm coming from and why I'm in a position to be delivering this information in a way that you can trust. Back to red raspberry leaf. How much can you take? Well, 
I usually recommend two cups of the tea a day. And when I say tea, what I'm really talking about is herbal infusions. So it's taking a few tablespoons or the way I measure it, a small handful of the herb, putting it in a mason jar or a tea pot with a strainer or however you make your tea. I actually love using a French press because you can put the herbs in the bottom, fill with your boiling water, let it steep for a half hour and then plunge it down and it strains it for you. It's a really great way and French presses are available on Amazon. They're fantastic. I use them all the time for making herbs and you can get them in individual, you know, like one or two cup sizes or bigger four cup sizes. You can get them bigger than that even. So how much red raspberry to take? One cup a day is fine, but two cups a day I think is great and is still known to be safe. And again, I prefer it in the last trimester. And you can also use tablets. Tablets are anywhere from, or capsules, 1.5 to 5 grams daily. I've never used them in my practice, but they're out there and you can get them. Since it doesn't have the most pleasant taste as a tea when you make it by itself, if you steep it long enough, I generally recommend mixing it with some herbs like spearmint and rose hips for a delicious tea, and then taking one to two cups of that throughout the second and third, or you know that second half of the second and throughout the third trimester. And you can keep sipping it during labor, and it's wonderful. You can make it into ice cubes if you like, and pop that into a cup of hot water to sort of reconstitute it. During labor, you can make ice pops out of it. It's really wonderful. So the way I make red raspberry leaf tea for myself, as I said, is about four tablespoons of the red raspberry leaf in a quart and just sip it throughout the third trimester, sip it during labor. But I also like to make a big mixture of it. And then what I do is I take one tablespoon of red raspberry leaf, two teaspoons of spearmint leaf, and one tablespoon of rosehip leaves. And then that would be what you make the tea out of. You don't have to memorize that. If you go over to avivaram dot com forward slash 92. The recipe will be there for you. All right. Now the second of my two faves, because I mentioned there were two faves, are red dates. Date fruits are so yummy. I mean, to me, they're like a sweet treat dessert. I love them. And what a lot of people don't know is that they're also delicious. I mean, not only delicious, they're nutrient rich. They're loaded with fiber, fats, proteins, carbohydrates, and a variety of vitamins and minerals. They also, interestingly, turn out to be a common remedy for preparing for labor in certain parts of the world, particularly in the parts of the world, ta-da, where dates grow. So in a recent study of 919 Iranian women, when they were asked what natural remedies they use in preparation for labor, 26% of them said they ate red dates as part of their pregnancy preparation at the end of pregnancy. I mean, talk about food as medicine. We still don't know how they work exactly, but it does appear that they might have an impact on the oxytocin that we need for labor to start and progress on time and effectively. Three scientific studies have shown that red dates, the kind that you can get at the store, you know, like the medjool dates, for example, talk more about that in a minute, are associated with increasing your cervical ripening, meaning getting the cervix ready for labor, less need for labor induction, greater likelihood of being more dilated when you arrive at the hospital, if you're having your baby at the hospital or when you call your midwife, you're more likely to be more dilated when she gets to your house, less need for Pitocin to stimulate labor, and a greater likelihood of induction working 
if it's needed. Induction not working is a huge reason for cesarean. And one of the biggest reasons for induction not working is the cervix not being ripe. So you're taking care of all of that with red dates. A 2011 study found that women who ate six dates a day for the four weeks leading up to their due date were significantly more dilated when they got to the hospital, had a higher rate of intact membranes, so their membranes didn't rupture prematurely, were significantly more likely to go into labor on time without needing induction, so on time but also on their own, and had nearly half the length of first stage of labor. A 2014 study found that women who ate dates from 37 weeks on, so about three weeks before you're due, also had greater cervical dilatation at admission to the hospital and also higher success of labor induction if it was needed. A 2017 study concluded that all of the above was accurate, and yet another study found that eating dates in pregnancy led to less bleeding immediately after birth. Are there any risks? Well, studies have looked at blood sugar levels in women eating dates this way and have found no changes in blood sugar. However, this hasn't been studied in women with diabetes. So if you have type 1, type 2, or gestational diabetes, you do want to discuss using red dates with your midwife or your doctor because they do have a substantial amount of sugar in them. How much do you take? Based on the studies that I've cited that have shown effectiveness, it's recommended to eat about 70 to 80 grams, which is about two and a half ounces of red dates starting daily at about 36 or 37 weeks and continuing until labor begins. There's no greater benefit starting sooner than that. The 2007 study that I mentioned specifically recommends deglet nor dates. That's the type D-E-G-L-E-T. N-O-O-R, Deglet Nor Dates, and says about six to eight a day is the magic number. Medjool dates are also likely totally fine, but because they're typically twice as big, I recommend keeping it to just about three or four of those instead of the six to eight of the other. Now, there's one herb that I recommend not taking in your pregnancy or labor unless you've got a good reason and good guidance. That's an herb called blue cohosh. It's been used historically in late pregnancy and in labor to get and keep labor going. And it's very effective, but it's not without risks. There are rare but definite risks of baby going into distress in utero and even more serious complications for baby than that. Again, extremely rare, but it has been shown in the medical literature. Now, as a midwife MD, I do use it on rare occasion, but only when there's a need medically to induce and a natural approach is still within reason. And I do it with personal guidance on how to use it and proper monitoring of baby's well-being. I do teach about this in my women's herbal course, and I do talk about it in my women's botanical medicine textbook, and also in the botanical safety handbook, which I'm the resident pregnancy expert and co-author of. Now, keep in mind, I have particular expertise in using botanicals and taking care of pregnant women. I also have particular expertise in this herb as I wrote my medical senior thesis on it over the course of two years and conducted extensive surveys of contemporary midwives and did an exhaustive search of the pharmacologic and historical literature. Enough to say that I think it's effective, I think it's reasonable to use, but I would definitely exercise caution. I talk more about this in my blog related to this podcast 
And the link is over on that podcast page at avivaram.com forward slash 92. I also give you a link to either purchase the monograph that was written and published about my data, uh, which I don't get a penny from, or you can read the monograph, you can read the thesis for free. And I give you the link for that, which it's published by Yale. So you can get it online. You know, each baby and each mama have our own story that we create together. And we don't have total control over all it happened, you know, how it all unfolds in the end. Our bodies, and I've seen this through hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of births, are so beautifully wise. And we do know how to birth our babies. In fact, surrender and openness are some of the most important ingredients that we can give ourselves. Surrender also and openness to what our baby's unfolding story is. Complex cultural factors and changes in how we live in modern times, along with over-medicalization, do mean that we do need to put some intention and conscious effort into increasing the likelihood of the birth experience that we hope for. And natural remedies, along with a healthy pregnancy and a doula or midwife, can help support and make this happen. I wish you a beautiful pregnancy, a beautiful birth, and I thank you so much for joining me. I'll see you in next week on Natural MD Radio. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Natural MD Radio. If you did, please go to avivaram.com and join the conversation about the show on my blog. And while you're there, be sure to sign up for my newsletter. It's free and it's jam-packed with powerful tips to help you take back your health naturally. That's avivaram.com. Take care and see you next time.